Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. And tonight's lesson is the cave. Now, I told Danny, I said, it's going to have to be deep. Because this is only mentioned like in one, it's like a one-time mention in a verse. It's like there's nothing in it, in the Bible about it. But it, it, there's so much in it that it brings out. So um, to kind of preface the lesson a little bit, I have to kind of explain the hiding. And some of us understand this, some of us may not. And for the podcast's sake, I'll just kind of explain it a little bit. But God will bring you through seasons of hiding. He will hide you for a season and he will protect you and he will prepare you while he's setting things up outside. And you have to take advantage of that season of hiding. You know, so many times people destroy themselves and destroy their callings because they get out and start trying to promote themselves. They take themselves out of the hiding place and start putting themselves in front of the enemy and they don't allow God to tie up the loose ends. Uh, Nathan Morris had made the, the point. He said, all revival is about hiding and revealing. God hides you for a season and then reveals you in his perfect timing once he has set everything up. Jesus was hidden all of his life so that he could be revealed in that final crucifixion moment and checkmate the devil. The devil didn't know what was going to happen. It was that checkmate in the end. That really changed everything. Moses spent his life in hiding. God literally hid him in the palace, but he was still hiding Moses to reveal him at a specific time. Had Moses been revealed ahead of time, Pharaoh would have killed him. He would have never come to that place and fulfill that plan that God had for his life. So a lot of time people despise the place of small beginnings. They despise the hiding place. They despise that place that God has put them to grow and to mature and to be protected in their growing while God sets up everything else to reveal them for whatever purpose he's going to use them for. A lot of times people will just leave the protection of that hiding place, not being satisfied with the revelation from God and the communion from God and the growing and the lessons that you get in the hiding place. They want more. They're not satisfied in this little church in the middle of nowhere. They want to be an evangelist. So they put themselves out there or they chase ambitions. And they end up falling. They end up having something happens because they weren't spiritually strong enough. They weren't tried and tested. They hadn't gone through enough trials to show them all the tactics of the enemy. And so they stumble and it ruins their name, their their reputation, because they didn't stay in the hiding place that God had provided for them. So there's always a hiding place when God is training you up and raising you up to be used for a purpose. Never despise small beginnings. Those that are faithful in the little, he will trust you in a lot. Don't leave the hiding place and reveal yourself before God has done it, or the devil will take you out. I had a a scenario where I know that there are things that God will do, but I know that for us, we're still in a season of hiding. He reveals what he wants. But God, you know, he, you know, he'll tell me, you know, I'm, I'm working this out here. I'm working this out here. I'm working on this person. The devil has set a snare here. The devil has put an insurgent here. I'm working these things out. You're in a hiding. Don't, you know, and I know that I'm, I'm personally in that 
season of hiding, but the devil's always trying to get me to step ahead of God's timing. And he'll do that with you too, with everybody. He'll do it with relationships. He'll do it with ministries. He'll do it with jobs. He'll do it with callings. He'll always try to get you to step out of God's timing. You can get a word that's a true word, but it's not God's time. And if you act ahead of God's time, the devil will destroy you. You know, God can, the, the devil can tell you, hey, this person is for you. This is your, your ordained spouse. And it might be true. But if it's not God's time and they're not ready, they're not spiritually sound, they break your heart and humiliate you. And now you don't want to have anything to do with them. You've stepped ahead of God's timing. So you always have to seek the Lord for that confirmation to know that it's not the devil trying to get you ahead of God's timing on a situation. So I had a situation where God was trying to, well, the devil, I think God was allowing for a test, but the devil was trying to push me out of hiding. But anyway, I had this situation where, where this person was trying to force me into this ministry he was doing and, and, you know, he was all excited about it. And he was like, I want you to be part of it. I want you to do it, you know, and I, you know, I want you to be part of this. You know, God is calling, he's using. And, and I'm like, no, God says, no, God says, God wants me where I'm at. Everything's good. I'm, he's got me in a season of hiding. He, he's already told me he's, he will not release me to be part of this thing. And I told him, I said, well, I would rather sit in a cave in Patmos and write manas and stand before millions in rebellion. And ever and that it, when I spoke it, like I knew it was the Holy Spirit. And ever since that point, God had used the cave. Because of that, I had told him I would rather sit in the cave at Patmos and write manas than stand before millions in rebellion. And so from that moment, God used the cave as a representation to me for the hiding place. Well, when I said it, I was thinking of the cave of Patmos, which was John the Revelator, wrote the book of Revelations from the island of Patmos in a cave. But the more I went on in this season, and it must be coming to the end of the cave because the devil is sending person after person, pushier and pushier, and it's just the most ridiculous, craziest thing trying to draw me out of this cave. And I keep asking God, and he keeps saying, nope, still in the cave. There's safety in the cave. You're hidden in the cave. So I keep sitting and I'm having dreams. And when I have dreams in the cave and I'm like, okay, God's using this symbolism of the cave. Well, I had never really done any study on it, but God started giving me more and more stuff about David. And Heather did a devotion last week that kind of touched on it again. And it was like just more and more and more confirmation about David. So today we're going to do a little study on the cave. I started looking into it this morning, reading about David, because David hid in a cave. And the more I looked through it this morning, the more God started to show me things. So David never chased the crown, but the crown chased David. David hid in a cave. The crown chased him all the way to his cave. He never left the safety of where God placed him, He never went looking to be king, looking to be seen, looking to be heard. The crown literally chased him all the way to his cave. So there is a lot to be learned about the cave. What is the cave? First, it's a place of humbling and hiding. Go ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 
just to give you a little back history of where we are right before this chapter, we all know the story of David and Goliath. David was a little nobody kid. Go back even farther, uh, you might remember that the prophet Samuel had went to the sons of Jesse because God told him to go anoint the king who would be king. And he looked over all of Jesse's sons and he thought, oh, this one would make a nice king. And God's like, no, no, no. He went through all of them and God said no. And so he's like, do you have any more kids? And he was like, well, yeah, we have a little scrawny boy in the field tending sheep. He was like, bring him in. And when he saw him, God said, yeah, it's him. So there was already a prophetic word spoken over David that he was to be king, which realizing that reading through his story, you kind of see, I don't think David bought it because there's one point where he even states, surely Saul is going to kill me. Like he didn't even believe he was going to live through this, much less be king. But God's word was upon him. So David kills Goliath. Then he becomes part of Saul's inner circle. He starts fighting. He becomes good friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. Uh, He starts fighting battles for Saul, winning battles everywhere. And then all of a sudden, the people make up a song about how Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And Saul got jealous. And you know, when I read that, I think of the word that God gave Jimmy Tate when he preached here about how the church gets jealous of God. When God's favor falls on somebody or when God starts to move in a true move, the Sauls get jealous. And that's what happened. Saul got jealous because he saw the power of God and God's favor moving through David. And from that moment on, he set out to kill David. He was chasing him and chasing him. And you go through chapters and chapters and chapters of David running for his life and going through all of these situations and scenarios, trying to stay alive because Saul is going to kill him. Because Saul realizes that the people like him more, that God's favor is upon him. And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave at Dullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. So in a nutshell, you can go back and read it. He goes through all of this running and he ends up um, going to a priest and asking him if there's any weapons. And lo and behold, the only weapon there is actually Goliath's sword from the Philistine that he killed. So the battle that he had fought in his younger day actually set up provision for him in this situation that he was running. But he runs on past, and so eventually he comes to a place where he's hiding in this cave in Adullam. This is David's first scenario in the cave. He's running for his life, and he's hiding in the caves in Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him, And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So something interesting happens in this cave. It doesn't say how long he was in the cave. In fact, it doesn't say very much about the cave at all. But he was in this cave for some time, because it says that everybody that had issues with the king, that was unhappy, that was broken, that was stressed, depressed, and in debt, they all came to David 
in the cave. The interesting thing is he's running for his life. He's hiding in this cave. He's just in communion with God because that's all he's got. And in the cave, God sends the masses to him. He didn't go out looking for them. He didn't go out trying to build an army. He didn't go out trying to stir up a revolution. He just got on his knees in a cave and God sent the revolution to him. And it's, it's the provision of the cave, but the cave is the place of humbling and hiding. He was humbled. David went from being worshipped by the masses, a great warlord looked at as second only to the king and by some greater than the king, to hiding in a cave. But even in the cave, God sent provision to him. And we're going to come back to this cave a little later because there's another verse in Psalms because there's actually a song that he wrote in this cave that is recorded in song, Psalms that gives you a little more insight into his mindset in the cave. But after this point in the cave, when the 400 people gathered with him, he ends up coming out and abiding in the wilderness for a little while. David's on the run. Saul is hunting him. All right. He went into the forest around there after he comes out of the cave, only when a prophet comes to him and tells him, the Lord wants you to go to this place. So he gets the word of the Lord. Okay, it's time to step out of the cave for a little bit. He's obedient. He comes out. He's got these 400 men under his command. Within this time frame, he gathers another 200 that come to meet him. So he ends up with about 600 men. Then God sends him to fight the Philistines to save the city of Kalal. So he's got 600 men under his command. God sends him to save the city of Kalal. He fights off the Philistines. Now they're abiding in the city of Kalal. He could have stayed in Kalal, but instead he prayed and God sent him back to a cave. So he goes to Kalau, he fights the Philistines, saves the city. Now the city's all like, oh, we love you. Him and his men are there. He starts praying. He asks God because he's in this walled city. He's like, okay, I know Saul's going to come now because people know we're here. They've heard about this battle. Well, Saul has heard about it, and he knows that Kalau is a walled city. So he thinks, well, surely I can get him now because he'll be, I can surround him. He'll be trapped in the city. But he doesn't know that David is actually praying and asking God, is Saul going to come? And God says, yes, he's going to come. And he says, will the people of the city deliver us into the hands of Saul? And he says, yes, they will. So they run again. They leave the city and all of his men kind of scatter for a bit, sends him back to the wilderness and back to a cave. Go to chapter 24 of the same book. Now remember, at first, the cave was a place of humbling and hiding. But here we see when he goes back to the cave that in this instance, it's a place of divine provision, favor, fulfillment, and kingship because something very interesting happens in this cave, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep cots by the way where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, um, 
Some translations say to use the bathroom, but really it was to take a nap. That's the best I can figure it out what that means. Some people would say that it was an old expression for using the restroom, but if you look where Elijah was teasing the uh, the heathens and said, is your God taking a nap? The original text said, is your God covering his feet? So I think that, and so yeah, which would make sense. You know, you go to bed, you pull the blankets up over your feet, which makes more sense when you realize what he what he does. It's easier to believe that he was taking a nap. What he's about to do, what yeah. he was about to do, basically, it makes more sense that he was asleep yeah. than using the restroom. All right. And he came to the sheep cots, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet or take a nap. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day which the Lord said unto thee. So the Lord had promised this to David, that he would deliver Saul into his hands. But the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. So while Saul's taking a nap in the cave, he sneaks up on him and cuts a piece of his skirt off without him realizing. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him. He got convicted because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. And David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Remember, the cave was a place of humility in the beginning, and now it's a place of promise, provision, and kingship. So they're hiding in the cave. Saul comes in to take a nap. They tell David to kill him. He said, look, the Lord already gave you a word that he would deliver Saul into your hands. Here he is. But instead, David goes and sneaks up and cuts a piece of his skirt off, hides, and then when Saul leaves, he comes out behind him and tells the men, we're not going to hurt him. I don't want to have his blood on my hands, basically. He is the Lord's anointed. He was my master. It wouldn't be right. But he has this skirt to prove to Saul that he could have killed him if he wanted to. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh my hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. And some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see ye, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. 
for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killeth thee not. So he's basically saying, I could have killed you, and this is the proof, because I have a part of your clothes in my hand. I was there when you were sleeping. And he was like, I could have, but I didn't. And I killeth thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. He's saying, look, God's favor is on my side. He delivered you into my hand, but I chose not to kill you. I could have. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth forth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord therefore be judge, and judge between me and thee, and see, and plea my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. So he's humbling himself unto the kingship, and he's saying, I have no ill against you. There's no reason for you to be hunting me. I have served you. I'm lower than you. I'm not trying to take your place. I could have killed you, but I didn't. God had favor on me and gave you to me, and I still didn't. I'm honoring your kingship. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. He sees it. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore, the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. So his second time in the cave, there's a proclamation, a revelation, and a declaration of his kingship, not only by all, but by his pursuer, by his enemy. Now, this goes on, and he lets him go, even though he declares that, you know, I can see now that you're God's chosen and anointed, and you'll make a better king than me. Uh, but he does continue to try to kill him. In fact, two chapters later, this scenario kind of happens again, where he's sleeping, and David has to come up, and he steals his spear and everything to show him again. I could have killed you again, and I didn't. Um, but the interesting thing about this, and this is a little bit of a side note, but definitely worth mentioning, Right after this event, and when this story, when this event ends, the very first verse of the next chapter, it says that Samuel the prophet died. Now what makes that interesting is that he dies as soon as this part is fulfilled, and this part was actually prophetically played out somewhat in Samuel chapter 15, whenever Saul disobeyed God. He, they, God had sent him out to wipe out his, this, the Amalek's, I think. And he told them, don't take in any of their sheep or anything. Don't take in any goods. Wipe the whole thing. Destroy it all. Well, he didn't. They took in the best of everything. They kept it. They were seeking money and profit and all this stuff. And so when he came back... Right, obedience is better than sacrifices. So they, they got greedy. He, he wanted, you know, the money and all of this stuff. So God sent Samuel to tell him that 
you know, this was wrong. And he tried to make excuses and lie and get around it. And so God got mad and took the kingdom from him. Uh, chapter 15. And then you have chapter 16 where Samuel anoints David. The chapter before 17, where 17 is where he kills the lion. Right. So the first one of the cases, he knew God had anointed him through the prophet Samuel to be king. Right. And how often have we received the word from Miranda or any other in that office to say, this is the word, and then great victory, and then all of a sudden, brick wall. What just happened, God? I thought you promised me kingship, right? Metaphorically. Right. I just felt that doesn't need this lesson. Because the word of prophecy, hey, you're going to be king. Two chapters later, you're in a cave running for your life. Right. And I saw what you came out, God. Are you sure I heard that right? You know? And it's just amazing how God literally just puts you through the fire to test your faith on the word that he promised. Yeah. Well, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to just read you uh, verse 26 and 28 from that chapter. Because this is the part that was kind of prophetic to that. And it says, And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And Saul turned about to go away. He laid hold. uh, Samuel turned around to go away. Saul laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and rent it. So as Samuel turns to leave, he's like, God just took the kingdom from you. You're not going to be king. He's taken it from you. When he turned to leave, Saul grabbed his skirt and ripped it, ripped a piece of it off. He says, and he rent it. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. He didn't know that neighbor was a kid in the field. But there was a prophetic declaration in that, that as Saul, Samuel started to leave, Saul ripped his skirt off and he turned and he said the lord has ripped the kingdom from you this day that turned around when he was sleeping in the cave david rips a piece of his skirt away and that's the point at which he declares and decrees surely you're going to be the king yeah, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so it, it turns it back around so that's a free one yeah. All right, so we basically have in the story of David, we have two caves, all right? In David, we have the first cave in Adullam, which was a place of humbling and hiding. He was humbled there. He was in hiding. He was, he was promised kingship. He was running for his life. He was living in a cave. He had nothing. Then in, um, in, in Gadi, which is the second cave, we have recognition of God's favor and kingship by all, even his enemy. But in between the two caves, we have him gathering followers. So people are coming to him in between the two scenarios of the two caves. David is a type of Christ. When I say a type, I mean an archetype, which is basically symbolic. It's kind of a similitude. He's a type of Christ. Christ, who was also known as the son of David because he was of that lineage. uh, Christ's story kind of parallels this in that when you look at Christ in the caves, you see these two cave scenarios also. The first cave being the manger, because in that time period, most of the animals were kept in caves or in a cliff of the rock, and that was what the mangers typically were. So we have hiding and humbling. Christ came to, the manger was part of the the humbling of God's deity and the hiding, because at the time they were hiding from Herod. 
And then the second cave that we have with Christ was the tomb. When they laid him in the tomb and covered it with a rock, it was also a cave. And in that cave, we have the recognition of God's favor and kingship by all, even his enemy, because that's when all realized, including Satan, that he was the son of God. And in between those two caves, you have him gathering followers. So in David's life, you have the two caves, the first cave where he was hiding and humbling, the second cave where he is declared king and even his enemy and pursuer realizes. In Christ, you have the two caves. You have the manger where he was hiding and humbling, and then you have the tomb where he was recognized by all as king, even his enemy, which means that Saul was a type of Satan. He was playing that part. And when we realize that Saul was a type of Satan, it kind of gives a new meaning and credence to the fact that the kingdom was being ripped from him and given to David. Was that son of David? What he was Yep. We kind of see a parallel of this, again, this um, Saul in the satanic manner. When you look at the two Sauls in Scripture, we've got Saul the king, which we've been reading about, who persecuted David, the progenitor of Christ, which is he that came before Christ. And then we have Saul, the Pharisee, who became Paul, who persecuted the Christians or the followers of Christ, which is those that came after Christ, also known as the son of David. God changed his name when he changed his role. Saul, and I'm talking about Paul Saul, the Pharisee Saul. Saul represented one ruled by Satan, just like the old Saul. Yet he was made a new creature in Christ and becomes Paul, gets a whole new name, and is ruled by God. Because that Saul represents Satan, or one ruled by Satan. Okay, that's more freebies. Back to, which kind of helps you understand the whole scenario, but back to the caves. All right, the cave is also a place of prayer. All of David's mistakes were made in the palace. But all of his majesty was made in the cave. Spurgeon said, if David had prayed half as much in the palace as he did in the cave, it would have been better for him. In the palace, you had Bathsheba. You had him killing Uriah. You had all of these mistakes and problems that he had. But in the cave, you had him having men brought to him, being recognized as, being recognized as king and God's favor being upon him and all of this stuff. All of his mistakes were made in the palace, but all of his majesty was made in the cave because the cave was a place of prayer. He was in desperation, and he reached out to God. Go to Psalms 142. The problems are what run you to the cave because for David, it was the pursuit of somebody who practically had been a father to him. I mean, he had raised him at this point because he was like 12 years old when when he fought Goliath. And from that point on... He stayed in the palace. So Saul had been like a father to him because by the time they grew up together, by the time he decided to kill him, he was a grown man because he had already received a wife. He was actually Saul's son-in-law at that point. Saul had given him his daughter. So he was a grown man. So he had been with him many, many years. So Saul, and that's why you see him constantly saying, my son, he speaks to David because they had grown together for so long. It was when this father figure turned against him 
and started chasing him and pursuing him to kill him. It was the problems. It was the heartbreak. It was the woe that drove him to that cave because we usually won't go to the cave on our own. We're very seldomly obedient enough to, you know, to God, oh, you want me to go sit in the cave and pray? Okay. A lot of times it's those terrible trials and situations, the heartache of a family member in need or in desperation where we need to go and pray for them or a lost loved one or a loss of a job or something that is going on in our life that drives us to that cave. But blessed is the man, I think, that can hear the voice of God and be obedient to go to the cave without needing to be driven to it. God led me to a sermon yesterday at Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, it was a teaching on how to be a minister. And I, I say oddly enough, but it was really God because he starts talking about the Olympics, you know, and it's the Olympics right now. But he was talking about the discipline of the athletes. And, of course, this was a long time ago whenever this recording was, but he was talking about an athlete that wanted to be in the Olympics, but his dad wouldn't let him. And so his dad told him, he said, well, I tell you what, if you'll go to this cave that I often go to to pray and fast for 40 days and stay in that cave and discipline yourself to stay in that cave and, and commune with God for 40 days, I'll let you come out and train and go, go to the Olympics. And he says he did that. And so he was kind of showing the discipline of those that brought themselves. And I was like, oh, well, that kind of goes into what God has been. And that was one of the scenarios of all of these different athletes he talked about and the discipline that they had to seek the Lord. So I think blessed is the man that will discipline himself to go to the cave without having to be driven there by Saul. Saul, remember, is an archetype for Satan. So Satan drives us to the cave. God allows him to chase you sometimes if it takes you to the cave. But when we're obedient to stay in the cave, then we get communion with God, we get revelation from him, we get God sends us the provision and the people and the kingship, but... If you choose to leave the cave, if you're too discomfortable in the cave, if the cave isn't good enough for you, if the cave is too small or too dirty and you leave the cave, you're putting yourself out in danger. And Saul, remember, is an archetype for Satan. Satan's going to get you. Does that mean you're going to fall to sin? Maybe so, but most likely he's going to kill you spiritually. He's going to kill your ministry. He's going to kill whatever it is God is trying to set up for you, that he's hiding you in the cave to protect you from, from being destroyed before that comes out. So we look at Psalms 142. Psalms 142, it's a short chapter, we'll read it. But the whole thing is a prayer. It's David's prayer in the cave. And this is the first cave, the cave at, yeah, Dolom. Uh, this was his cry in the first cave. And I find something interesting about this prayer. Remember, he was in a Dolom for a period of time, even though it's not described, because that's when he started drawing men to him. So apparently he was in there for a while by himself before people started coming. And this was a time of prayer. And this was one of his prayers that is recorded. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knowest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me? I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge 
and my, and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Now, go back a verse. I want you to notice something here. All right, this is obviously before anybody came. Because at the beginning of the prayer, he's saying that there's nobody on my side. I'm by myself. I'm all alone. So when he was driven to the, play, to the cave by Saul, an archetype of the enemy of Satan, he was driven there, he was humbled, he was broken, and he was desperate. And he's crying out to God. Now, this is before anybody comes to his aid, before he starts to get all this help. And if you notice the last two verses, it says, Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. The last verse is prophetic. The righteous shall compass me about. Though so he spent the first part saying, God, I'm alone. There's nobody here. He's praying. He's praying. And as he's praying, the Lord is communing with his spirit, and he gets revelation. And by the end of the prayer, he's praying prophetically. The righteous are going to be all around me. You're going to deliver me out of this. And it was right after that prayer at some point that men started to be gathered unto him in the cave because that's when he gathered the first three, the first 400. They came to him. He didn't go out and seek them. God sent them to him. So the cave is a place of prayer, but it's a place of learning to hear from God. It's a place of revelation. It's a place of promise. It's a place where we get that word from the Lord and we begin to see it happen. When you're in that desperate place and the devil has chased you to that place of prayer and you're desperately praying for yourself, for a situation you're going through, for a loved one, for a family member, for something that's going on, and it's training you to hear from the Lord and to pray and to cry and to intercede, he starts to put that revelation in you and you, then he allows you to see it play out. It's training you, it's building your faith. He was preparing David to be king, and he was using the trials of the cave to do it. Had he never gone to the cave, or had he left it early, he would have never gotten any of that, and he would have never gotten the men that came. He would have been destroyed. In the cave, he got a prophetic cry. This was not just a prayer. This was a cry. And it wasn't just a cry. It was a prophetic cry. The cave is a place of promise, and prophetic revelation. Starts with frustration, ends with revelation. <laughs> All right. In the cave, he communed with God. Out of necessity, but he learned how to commune with God, and that's something that he took with him throughout his kingship. Even when he didn't do it as much and he fell, he, would, he had the, the knowledge of how to, and he would come back to it. The whole book of Revelations was written in a cave. Revelation comes in the cave. It's that quiet place. Had David stayed where he was, what kind of king would he have been? He was a soldier. He was a revolutionary. He was a warrior for Saul. He would have never stopped to quietly seek the Lord and have that communion and that revelation and that time, that quiet time in the cave had he constantly been a man of war under Saul. He would have never been the king 
that he was supposed to be. And even in his, even in his, his mistakes, the thing, you know, going through this, God kind of showed me the thing that made Saul so different, Paul, David so different from Saul is that Saul, because really David, in our view, sinned and messed up a lot worse than what Saul did. But when Samuel came to Saul, he didn't own up to his mistakes and he didn't receive the correction. He tried to lie. He tried to manipulate. He tried to get around it until it come to the point where Saul, Samuel said, look, you've lost the kingship. You know, then he's like, oh, forgive me. I don't want to lose the kingship. He didn't receive the correction. David, on the other hand, he messed up several times. But as soon as the prophet came and said, hey, you messed up, he received the correction. He was like, oh, my gosh, what do I do to fix it? I'm so sorry. You're right. He was correctable. He was teachable. He, he, he was humbled because I think of the cave experience. He was humbled enough to be able to be receive correction and be broken. And, and Saul, on the other hand, was very prideful. Again, the archetype of Satan. Pride and humility. So not much can be said about the cave. When we think about it, we look at the caves in these verses. There's not a lot really said about it in the verses. The first one, all it says is that he went into a cave in this location. And in the second one, he went into a cave in this location. Looking on face value, not a lot can be said about the cave. But the cave says a whole lot. When you really take in what he gained in that experience and what he would not have gained had he not gone through that experience and how Saul would have killed him and wiped him out had he not been faithful to stay in that hiding and learn to hear from God and be obedient to it. Everything changed in the cave. Everything changes for us in the cave, in those hiding places as well. I truly believe that every person that God truly has a strong call on, if there is any form of kingship in your life, any calling, anything he wants, he is going to take you to a cave. Whether you are obedient to stay in that hiding place and commune with him or not determines whether you're going to make it to the palace or if you're going to die in the wilderness. All true ministry, changing breakthroughs, I believe, come to men seeking communing with God, and waiting faithfully on God in the cave. All of your breakthroughs, the true ones, not the fake ones, not the ones we see a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are crying for the meat of Egypt. You know, we did that lesson. And sometimes God says, okay, I'm going to let you have it till it comes out your nose. And you get a lot of fake ministries and fake um, blessings for a short time. That ends up destroying them in the end. But I think all true ministries, moves of God. When you study the Smiths Wigglesworths, the Spurgeons, the Tozers, the they all stayed in the cave and they were obedient to their time in the cave. So don't forsake the cave or the place of small beginnings or your hiding place. Don't reveal yourself ahead of time. Don't go chasing revolutions or crowns. Wait for God to bring it to you. Or call you out of that cave. You know, we run from the devil, but I would say be thankful for the times in the caves because I truly, truly believe that if God plans for you to be in a palace, you're going to have to get there through a cave. And if we're not faithful in the cave, you're going to die before you get to the palace. And I think that's where most ministers die spiritually. That's where most of them lose their callings. That's where most of them lose the plan that God had for them. 
they're not faithful in the little things. It's it's too no, dirty. It's too small. They're not willing to be humbled. They're not willing to spend their time in the cave. So they go out prematurely while Saul is still in the woods, and they get slayed. Those that forsake the cave for its perceived lowliness are missing out on the most powerful place in their journey of faith. They are skipping their season of testing, communion, revelation, provision, and exaltation. Furthermore, those that won't spend time in the cave will be killed in the wilderness and will never make it to the palace. Remember, the cave is a place of hiding, humbling, praying, prophesying, and breakthrough through divine provision that no man can claim glory for. When God's favor and provision find you in the cave, all know that it could have only come by his hand. And that was the revelation that Saul had when he realized that God had sent him to David in the cave. David didn't come seeking for Saul. If David had left that cave and hunted Saul down, he would have said it was David's hand. David was obedient to stay in that cave and hide. God sent Saul to David. And that's what made Saul realize, wow, God's favor is on this man. He truly is meant to be king. Whenever we're obedient to be in that cave and God's provision is sent to you, nobody can deny that was the work of God. That wasn't them. So there's great power in that. And I would close with First Paul, First Peter 5, 6, and we all know it. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, which is also the verse of the day. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.